I'm Jeff Cohen. With the unfortunate situation in Ukraine dominating the news cycle, it couldn't be more timely to interview my next guest. Jeff Pavel grew up there before moving to the United States and has a fascinating perspective on the situation. He also became observant along the way and is ready to share his story today. Jeff, welcome to Saturday to Shabbos. Thank you, Jeff. So I must tell our listeners before we begin that you and I, in fact, know each other and go to the same shul. But even with that, I've never had the opportunity to sit down for an extended conversation to hear your story. So I'm actually excited to learn really a lot more about you today. I'm excited to share it. All right. So let's get started. But before we even get into your story, let's go into your ancestry a little bit. Like how much do you know, maybe even all the way back to your great grandparents as far as where they were born and raised? Most of my family is from Ukraine, except for my paternal grandfather, who is from Romania. As far as I know, since Kiev was outside of Pelov settlement, my great-grandparents could not live in Kiev, but most of my family moved to Kiev in the 20s and 30s, and some of my family, or most of my family, was not religious even back then. Okay, were they doing anything in terms of customs? Like, were they celebrating Hanukkah, Pesach? Were they doing any of these things, or just, like, completely secular? So, as far as I know, my great-grand-maternal great-grandparents were completely secular, even, like, in the early 1900s. My great-grandfather was a smith, which is quite an uncommon profession for a Jew. So, he his father owned a smith, and he worked there. And uh, as far as I know, they, they were not religious even back then. My paternal grandfather grew up in Romania, which was outside of the Soviet Union. So he grew up religious, going to a Haider, which is a primary school. And until the World War II, he was more or less observant. Okay, and then something happened kind of post-war that it fell by the wayside a little bit? So during the war, he was drafted into a Romanian army. And he basically, as far as I'm told, deserted, and he ran away towards Russia, which of course my, led my family to joke that he ran the wrong way, but uh, I guess that I'm here so he, he ran the right way. Uh, but in Russia it was impossible to do any religious observance, so he slowly lost it over the course of his life. Okay, so let's now bring, bring you into the story. Where were you born and raised? In, like in the early years? I was born in Kiev. And so were my parents already, like my mother and my father, both were born in Kiev. Where were your parents on the religious spectrum as you came into the world? So my parents knew absolutely nothing. So the only thing that my family observed from a religion point of view is my grandfather used to go to the only functional synagogue in Kiev on Pesach and would bring home like a box of matzah. And we would have a, I guess, celebratory lunch or something and have uh, lots of other non-kosher things along with that matzah. And in fact, I didn't even know the word Pesach. It was called uh, Jewish Easter because in most <laughs> in most uh, European languages other than, I guess, English and German, the word for Easter actually comes from Pesach, which again, I didn't know. I thought that Pesach comes from that word, but it's the other way around, obviously. So, like, Jewish Easter doesn't sound very religious, even even now to me, but that's the only thing that I knew growing up. So I think what's interesting for a lot of our listeners is that if you think about Ukraine, it's for better or worse a place that people weren't spending a lot of time thinking about until this past January, February, when it suddenly became, like, front page news for everybody. 
And so they're seeing it in a specific way, watching what's going on between Ukraine and Russia. But can you kind of paint a picture of what Ukraine was like for you growing up and maybe what that environment was like in, in a way that people maybe don't understand from what they're seeing in the news now? So there's a saying that I heard that if you don't observe being Jewish, the other people will remind you. And that kind of was my experience growing up. Even though nothing about my family was Jewish other than that line in the passport, which in Russia, USSR passports had a nationality line, so we had Jewish there, but literally nothing else about our lifestyle was Jewish. But nonetheless, I, growing up, I experienced some level of anti-Semitism in some places more, some places less. I have some really jarring memories from when I was really young. When I was three and a half, I contracted hepatitis, and I was placed into a, like a fairly isolated clinic with a lot of kids. And my name now is Jeff, but obviously it wasn't Jeff growing up. It was Evgeny, but it's a standard Russian name, one of the more popular ones. But like teenagers who were there in that clinic used to call me Abrasha, which is Russian version of Abraham. And when my grandfather, who was a doctor who was allowed and used to visit, I would ask him, why are they calling me that? That's not my name. And uh, obviously that was a... Uh, put down like 13, 14 year olds having fun at the expense of a three year old. Second time I remember was I was four years old in daycare and we're playing soccer and some kid, I was playing goalie and some kid made, made a shot on goal that I saved and he called me kike face. Literally. Like wow. a four year old kid in daycare and that was also very jarring to me. Again I went home to my parents I'm like why, why? And then they sat down and explained to me that we're Jews and we're different. Again, I didn't understand the why of it, but I certainly understood the what, that I was different. You can also see how powerful anti-Semitism can be, because if you think about how many things any of us can remember from when we were three or four, and you're recounting these stories as if they happened recently, like they're, they're so clear in your head. So that's really like, it's just sad that it's that front and center for you. Yeah, those two things and a couple of experiences in elementary school where I was the only Jew in my class, if not the entire school, stick out. And then after sixth grade, I went to a you know special math and physics school, and obviously there are a lot more Jews uh, in that school. <laughs> <laughs> so wait, I want to I want to go back to the anti-Semitism just for a minute because if you think about what's going on in the news right now. This idea of Nazism in Ukraine and how Russia is talking about that a lot as a basis for what they're doing in Ukraine. And historically, we know that there was a lot going on at the time of World War II that Ukraine would not be proud of in their treatment of the Jews. But give us a little bit of your perspective of how it may have evolved over the years, how Ukraine is towards the Jews now versus some of these stories you shared just before. So one thing I want to mention is I grew up in Kiev, which is the site of Babi Yar, which is the place where the most tragic occurrence of uh, possibly Jewish history, World War II for sure, took place, where it was massacred anywhere between 70,000, 150,000, depending on who you ask. In uh, Soviet Union growing up, you didn't know anything about Jewish Holocaust. Anywhere the Jews were killed en masse, they said Soviet citizens were killed. They didn't at all emphasize the fact that it was directed against the Jews, obviously, as they didn't, they wanted to downplay it. So growing up, I did not really like Ukraine or Ukrainians, to be honest. 
the reason for it most likely again so i brought up pale of settlement before most jews were not allowed to live in russia proper only most well-to-do and successful jews were allowed to move to moscow and leningrad and other places in russia so you could say that at that time in soviet union in russia anti-semitism was less prevalent than ukraine and uh, places that actually had more jews but over the last 30 years, what I've noticed from here, and I moved here in 1990, right, as the Soviet Union fell. So I really left Soviet Union, and I do not have experience with independent Ukraine, but I have followed it very closely over the years. I still have friends there. My relatives moved out over the last 30 years, but until very recently, I did have relatives there as well. And I do know what's going on. So it's an interesting transformation that independent Ukraine has undergone. In the city of Dnipro, former Dnipropetrovsk, right now, there's the largest Jewish center in the world. But just the fact that the largest Jewish center in the world is in Ukraine is mind-boggling to me and, and is indicative of the transformation that Ukraine has undergone. In, 19, in um, 2019, there was a Pew survey about anti-Semitism in Eastern European nations. They asked, I think over 40 countries, and the question that they asked, how for or against you would be if a Jew would be your next door neighbor? And the fact that Ukraine came out as the best in that survey was culmination of that transformation as far as I'm concerned. Only 5% of the people say in Ukraine said that they wouldn't like a Jew as their neighbor, whereas like in country like Serbia, it was over 40%. And how about a Jew as the leader of the country? So that's uh, obviously um, an extremely positive development. And before President Zelensky was elected, um, a Jew was elected to be a prime minister, or um, I think appointed to be prime minister by then pre by then Ukrainian president, which to me is almost uh, as uh, mind-boggling. And while President Putin himself might not be overtly anti-Semitic, and he has a very friendly relationship with the head uh, chief rabbi of Moscow, certainly your average Russian is plenty anti-Semitic right now. So I get the sense that we could probably spend the rest of our entire time discussing uh, Russia versus Ukraine, but I want to also go back to your story, because where we left off, you were in elementary school, and then you got involved more in math and science type stuff. So take me into those years of your life, like the kind of school you're in and maybe where religion starts to enter the picture in a bigger way during your formative years. When I went to that school, I went to that school for two years. It was certainly a lifestyle change in terms of me being able to be a peer rather than someone who's looked down upon in elementary school. I was able to, I wouldn't say survive, but possibly get along by letting some of the more abusive elements copy my homework, basically. Um, and then in, uh, in specialized school, when there were four or five Jews in my class, obviously that element wasn't there anymore. It's also closer to the center of the city, a liberal environment. I don't know if that's the right word, but still nothing there. Even despite liberalization from 85 on, I still had nothing to do with Judaism at that point. So my first uh, encounter with anything Jewish was in 1990. My cousin, who was uh, nine years old at the time and lived in the center of the city, she went to a Sunday school, Jewish Sunday school, started by Rabbi 
Blyth, who was chief rabbi of Ukraine and still is actually. And because she went there, they invited us for a Pesach Seder. As you see, Pesach is a recurring theme here. So what they did is they rented out the biggest restaurant in Kiev with multiple rooms, probably a thousand people there, and they had a Seder. Most people didn't know what, what was going on, but at least that was the first time I had anything to do with organized religious activities. That summer uh, we went to a town near Kiev, and that same Rabbi Bly had the summer camp there. and. Uh, my mother and I met other Jewish families on that vacation that we interacted with closely, and then they offered us to take us to the camp to see what was going on. That was very strange to me at the time. I saw a line of uh, girls all wearing skirts, which was very unusual, lining up towards their hands before the meal and not speaking as they go back to the table. That was quite unusual, right? It's hard to, to have, you know, 200 Jews and not speaking for five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> so, so those two experiences is what I remember. And in the camp, they invited me and the boys, the other two boys that were there with me, and we said what I now realize was Shema Yisrael written out in Russian letters. And the other two guys actually grew up knowing more about Judaism, so they explained to me how holy this is, and then when they shook hands with the rabbi, how excited they were about it. To me, that really wasn't anything that I was looking forward to or knew about. My path to Judaism begins in Brooklyn, New York. My, my family immigrated in 1990 in September. We went to register into public school. And what is the first thing uh, that, again, uh, the word Russian is going to be in my vocabulary because just I'm so used to it, but it really refers to Russian-speaking Jews who grew up in Ukraine, which is a mouthful. So I'm going to continue using Russian, but it re really not. <laughs> so uh, what is the first thing that Russian parents uh, buy for their kid? Of course, they decided that I need the desk to study. So our apartment was at the time near Bora Park. So they went walking around just looking for a furniture store. and. The first store that they encountered was uh, called Frankel's Furniture. And they walked in, and in my mom's broken English and my father's remnants of his Yiddish, they explained that they were looking for a desk. And the family who was running the store basically immediately invited us over for a meal. I think it might have even been Rosh Hashanah. They had a lot of guests. So we came, we rang a bell, of course, we didn't know otherwise. <laughs> we had a good meal. I was my, my English was the best between me and my parents, which was probably, I don't know, 10% understanding of what I was, I was being spoken to. And, but somehow we had a wonderful meal and we went back home. Next week, we had a ring uh, at our door. And Mr. Frankel walks in with another religious-looking person. That person introduced him, himself to us in Russian as uh, Rabbi Budilovsky, who was running a school for Russian Jewish kids in Brooklyn. And Mr. Frankel, through him, told us that he basically couldn't sleep at night seeing that this nice Jewish boy is going to public high school. And Rabbi Budilovsky 
actually was running a K to eight, and I was in high school at the time. And he recommended a different school run by Rabari Akatsin called Sinai Academy Shiva High School. And my parents had no interest for in, in any Jewish education for me, nor did I. It still sounded pretty strange to me. Rabbi Dulosko was able to convince them that secular studies in that school were excellent. Sinai Academy gave us a huge discount for me to attend. And uh, that's how I ended up in Yeshiva High School. And uh, um, we kept in touch with uh, Mr. Frankel's family for years. And I'm still grateful to this day for him for that. So I just want to back up and ask you one question before we go into the high school years. So you mentioned your family you know, coming to the United States, but you didn't say why that decision was made. Why, why did you pick up from Ukraine and decide to come to New York? My, my family was quite comfortable in Soviet Union, despite the fact that things weren't so great as uh, perestroika was happening. Uh, in 1989, my grandma, my father's mother, passed away, and my uncle, who was in the United States for 13 years by that time, came to Soviet Union to the funeral, and he could basically convince my parents that it's time to get out as now. And he was right, as things like completely unraveled over the next couple of years. So it was purely pragmatic decision. Okay, so you, you're going to this school. Is this the first time that you're reading Hebrew or is you're trying to do the Jewish side of the curriculum? Yes, everything was completely new to me. Other than that one time where Shemayas wrote with transliteration next to it, I, I basically have never seen Hebrew letters. I, I didn't know what uh, Gemara was. I, I didn't know what Chumash was. I knew that there was something called the Old Testament as part of the Bible, but Literally, in that you know, November 1990, and I'm 15 years old, and sitting down in my first class and opening Gemara Sukkah with my Havruta, which again, the, the concept was completely alien to me at the time. Everything was brand new. But did um, other kids in the school, were they starting from the same place as you? Or a lot of them had had this basically through their whole school career and, and you were the only sort of newbie in the school no it's the opposite most of kids were exactly where i was uh, religiously and educationally some kids who grew up in maybe smaller towns had uh, stronger traditions maybe their grandmothers lit candles maybe they knew what the yom kippur was none of us were observant when we started at the school but quite a number of us did end up observant after during that time frame of going through high school, as you're getting exposed to a lot of this stuff for the first time, are you starting to bring home to your family? Oh, I'm learning some things about candles and challah, and I'm you know studying things that maybe we should be implementing within our family. Is that progression happening over those four years? So again, going back to my grandmother's death in 1989, when I'm 14 years old, I I, I was struck by lack of meaning in that experience, and I was already searching for something. I realized there's something lacking in my life, some level of spirituality, I guess. And I didn't have anything in my Soviet experience to be in meaningful in any way. I mean, they tried to actively suppress religion, right? The famous Russian saying, you know, religion is opium for the masses. In reality, communism, as it was part of Russian-Soviet experience, is kind of a religion. You had to worship Lenin and Stalin, or after Stalin, Khrushchev, or after Khrushchev, Brezhnev. You had to worship Lenin and whoever was in charge at the time. 
And basically that replaced religion for most of people at the time. And for me, that wasn't enough. And I guess by 1990, that edifice was falling apart anyway. So back to your question, I went to school, I was learning about Jews, I was learning about Judaism. And yes, the first thing I brought home was Shabbos. So something about it struck me as so pure and necessary, like this day of rest. Like abstract yourself from any day-to-day living and communicate with God. So how did your parents react to you sort of bringing this home from school? Like, Was it like, why don't we try one as a family? Or what were those discussions like? They were not positive. And uh, as I kept taking on more and more things, I, I received pushback at every step. And it's understandable, right? You have a kid who comes home and tells you that now he can't do your laundry on Saturday, right? Or you shouldn't watch TV because... You know, it's it's not something that you do on Shabbos. My, my mom was supportive of me without being interested in it herself, which changed later. But in my high school years, my dad was very opposed and my mom was kind of caught between the two of us. Right. But I didn't come back and say, now I am fully observant one day. Right. It, it was slow. It did take a couple of years for me to take on what, what I would say is full Orthodox observance. But you got there by the end of high school? You would describe yourself as fully Orthodox over that four-year period? So it was less than four years, actually, because I, I went into 10th grade. And by the time I was in 12th grade, I was more or less observant. Right. What, what, uh, I, I wouldn't necessarily go to shul for every prayer, but I would fully observe Shabbos in terms of not violating the malachot, right? I would uh, still eat meals that my mom made, but I wouldn't eat pork and I wouldn't mix meat and milk. So I was religious enough that my school, particularly my rabbi of my 12th grade, recommended that I go to Or Sameach in Israel, which is a huge step because my parents wouldn't even want me to go to college in next state over. So going to Israel on my own when I was 17 years old in the middle of my high school year was uh, quite a big step. So as you were contemplating doing that, was there still a plan in place with your parents as far as college afterwards? Was it was it something like, look, I'm going to go do this for this time period, but there's a plan for when I come back and here's what I want to be and where I want to go to college? Or you were not even up to that yet? I, I completed all my applications to college. I left in December, but I didn't receive my acceptances yet. I applied only to three colleges because I in my third college was YU. I was religious, but I wasn't sure I wanted to be in that environment. Now looking back, of course, I, I, I think it was, it was exactly the right environment for me. But at the time, I didn't know that. So I went to Israel having applied, but not having received my acceptances. But I knew for a fact that I was going to college afterwards. Okay, so take me inside that experience in Israel. So in some ways, it was very uplifting in some ways it was actually not very good because i expected you know when you learn in yeshiva sitting in brooklyn and israel is described as the land of milk and honey 
and I honestly had way too high expectations of Israel as a country and Israelis. I expected most people to be religious, but it struck me a little bit that in the country where everything is so easy, everything is so available in terms of religious experience, in terms of kosher food, people just didn't take advantage of that. So that was a little bit of a letdown. But Yeshiva itself was amazing. It let me choose my own program. I heard lectures uh, by some amazing lecturers. And even though it wasn't like fully 100%, as you said, come back and take up all the observances, I did uh, tell my mom on my way home in a taxi from the airport that I'm done eating non-kosher meat. Right, and uh, that was a big deal at the time. My parents didn't make a lot of money, and kosher meat, even chicken, was you know, still is quite more expensive than non-kosher. So that was an uncomfortable discussion. Were there any other siblings at home? I can't believe I've never even asked you that. <laughs> no, I'm an only child. Therefore, my parents could fully focus on uh, <laughs> on the both positive and obviously negative side. So everything I did was scrutinized uh, with uh, full intensity of both my parents. Okay, I can understand that. So you then go to YU. I and did now not you're... actually go to YU. Oh, because, you did not go? Because I'm saying in retrospect, um, I, I, I think that was the right place for me, but I ended up going to Columbia University. So you got into both places and you had a decision to make? Yes, that's true. I applied to MIT from which I was rejected, but that was my by far choice number one because I, I'm in technology and I'm still, uh, I guess, one of few people I talked to to this happy with their career choice and never, <laughs> never <laughs> wavered in that. Uh, so I'm a computer programmer and I'm in the technology. So MIT was my first choice. Columbia was my second choice because uh, it was in New York City and my parents were quite happy that I ended up there in terms of being close to home. So this idea of having an acceptance at YU and Columbia, it's really interesting to me because you see all the studies now about when a kid has a choice of going to a school like YU or a secular college, like the odds of them staying religious, depending on that choice, it can be pretty dramatic. But I'm wondering when you were looking at those two choices, and you've just recently really become fully observant, was there any thought process to, hmm, if I pick this versus that, how might my life turn out through college and afterwards? I knew that I was going to stay observant through college. There was no question of me at that point wavering. And in fact, I went through Columbia with most of my friends not being observant. I met a lot of non-observant Russian-speaking just in Colombia. And while I did go to Hill and met some other observant Jews, in fact, that's how I ended up in Fairland because my roommate, my sophomore year, lived in Fairland at the time and he invited me for Shabbat several times and I liked it so much that after I got married we didn't do in community shop. We just moved to Fairland, New Jersey and Rabbi Yudin's rule. Wow, so that was one of the easier decisions as I'm listening to your life story. <laughs> yes. And you just mentioned getting married, so let's bring Jenny into the story. How does she come into the picture and like what was her background in terms of level of observance? Jenny's story mirrors mine in a lot of ways, as in she grew up in a Jewish, non-religious, non-observant family, not knowing much or if anything about Judaism. She may have heard a lot 
about more things because she grew up in a, in Odessa, not Kiev, which is more Jewish city. But she was in exactly the same situation. But when she was applying to colleges, she actually made a decision not based on like what's going to be best for her future career like I did, but she wanted to learn about Judaism so much that she picked the college just strictly based on the name. And she went to University of Judaism in Los Angeles. <laughs> it was a conservative school, but she didn't know that at the time. Right? Her uh, exposure in high school was limited to a few Chabad get-togethers thrown by uh, Russian-speaking Chabad uh, shul in Los Angeles. Wait, but her family then, similar to yours, made a decision at some point during her childhood to come to the United States? Yes, for similar reasons at the time. There was a huge outflow of Jews from Soviet Union as the doors opened up, to a large degree thanks to American Jewry who mounted uh, a huge campaign to free Soviet Jewry, and of, of which uh, Rabbi Yudin was a big part, actually, which I found out later after moving to Fairland. But uh, her family, they left Ukraine about the same time, like a year earlier. And they went to Brooklyn just like we did, but then after a year in Brooklyn, they moved to Los Angeles. So then I'm thinking our listeners are wondering, this guy's in New York, she's in Los Angeles, how do their worlds collide? (laughs) After graduating from University of Judaism, Jenny wanted to continue on the path, and uh, for graduate school she came to Jewish Theological Seminary, which is in New York City. And in fact, quite ironically, it's a block away from Columbia University. At the time that we met, I already graduated, but I was working full-time for Columbia University. I ended up working in the computer science department for a number of years after I graduated. And I spent quite a lot of time in that building, even after working hours. And uh, Jenny and I joked that we probably shopped in the same supermarket for a year before (laughs) we met. So then take me inside how you actually came across each other. So maybe you were in the same grocery store, but you didn't know each other, and you were obviously living near each other, but how do you actually cross paths? So at that time, in late 90s, early 2000s, online dating was just starting to take off, and I registered for several sites, uh, and one of them was now defunct jewishmatch.com, and uh, I saw a few profiles, and when you sign up for those sites, you get some free tokens to contact girls, and no profiles really struck me as someone I'd be willing to date, and two days after my free tokens expired, I saw this profile with the name of Zhenishka, which is a Russian for Zhenya, which happens to be both her and my Russian first name. And to me, it kind of immediately piqued my interest because Russian-speaking Jewish girl who identifies as Orthodox, I mean, that just checked off every box I was looking for. So what did you do? You found a way uh, to get some extra tokens and contact her? Yes. One of the things I did is I actually paid money to get tokens to contact her. (laughs) She was the only one I did that for, and thankfully I didn't need to do that again. (laughs) Okay, so I'm assuming that when you reached out, it was reciprocated in some way, and you ended up meeting live and and going out on a first date? Yes, uh, we met uh, live. We we dated some restaurants around Manhattan, which unfortunately, again, not there anymore for the most part. But I have to say that both 
Estihana and Dougie's that we went to in Manhattan are now available in Teaneck, 10-minute drive from us. <laughs> so it all worked out. <laughs> yes. Are you having conversations about the fact that uh, you weren't raised observant, she wasn't, you both kind of in a similar time frame found your way to it, and that if this relationship is going to work, that's the kind of family you intend to have and you intend to be in a Jewish community? Like, is it, are you having those like precise conversations as it gets more serious? I think we figure out quite quickly our dating timeline was pretty short by secular standards, insanely short, right? We got engaged uh, within six months and we were married within a year. I think four months actually is when we got engaged. So yes, and it was, it was immediately apparent to both of us that we were on the same path. We were interested in the same things and uh, I mean, all you can say it's Pashert, uh, right? It's what you, what Hashem intended, and uh, I haven't had any cause to regret it, and I hope neither neither does she. <laughs> <laughs> it's smart that you said that on the air. Well done. <laughs> but what about your two families? You know, you had mentioned early in the interview, particularly for you, not being thrilled with the idea of you becoming observant. The fact that you've now met someone and you intend to live that way is, is a pretty strong signal to your parents that this is going to stick. It's not a phase. So how, how are they taking it at this point? At that point, actually, I'm in my mid-20s, and my mom made peace with it, and she was quite supportive of uh, me living the lifestyle by that it was quite a turnaround from the early years, but I think most of the struggle, I, I don't even call it struggle, because she really was supportive, but within graduating of high school, right, within three years of me knowing nothing to me being, I would say, fully orthodox by the time I graduated high school, that was not an issue that we discussed too often anymore. The, it was what it was, my family was not observant, I was, and we, we were going to do the best we could to accommodate each other. And that's what happened since. I'm I'm very proud of my mom. She now lights Shabbos candles. And she goes to Asia Torah to read all the... A lot more than some uh, religious people, I would say. She, she, she is interested in Judaism. But Jenny's family is not religious. She, they were not as supportive as my family was, my mom was. And uh, that's, I, I guess, to a large extent, why we're in New York and they're in Los Angeles. But did they at least have the perspective of, well, Jenny did meet a nice Jewish boy, so maybe we're not thrilled with the religious element of it, but they could see you're a good guy and Jewish, and was, like, was that enough to at least give it some kind of blessing? Yes, 100%. When our families met when we got engaged, we had a very nice meal at a kosher restaurant, and we're not antagonistic towards each other. It's a, it, we visit each other often, or rather, we probably go there more than they come here. But uh, they try to accommodate us the best they can. My mom, for a long time, had a separate set of dishes for me in the house. There's no like overt antagonism towards us in any way. And so I remember early in an interview, I was asking you about siblings, where I found out for the first time you didn't have any, despite the fact that we know each other pretty well. But I do know that you have three kids. So um, I'm wondering, like, what do you tell them about your history and how you've chosen to raise them versus how you and Jenny were raised? My kids, growing up in an Orthodox home, going to an Orthodox day school system, and uh, they really don't know any different, right? They're not any different from their friends whose parents grew up religious. 
they really just see that in occasion visit from the grandparents who might not know that maybe their grandma and grandpa or babushka and dedushka as opposed to zaidi and safta right but other than that i talk to my kids about hardships growing up like for example like how my great grandparents lived in a house that had no running water or indoor plumbing and i in my lifetime remember going you know to an outhouse uh, and going to pump water to to bring to boil for soup which is insane right if you think about it you 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 think these things happen you know in in the middle ages but this is key of city of 3 million residents in 1980 so that's something that they are aware of of how lucky they are to be where they are but as far as religious upbringing is concerned i really don't think that they consider themselves any different from their peers that to me uh, not to toot my own horn i think that that means that we succeeded right yeah but have you ever taken them back to see their roots have you taken family trips there to show them where you grew up this goes back to the transformation of ukraine earlier when my kids were younger i had no interest like i would say i love ukraine it's beautiful but ukrainians are you know not so great now i'm thinking absolutely when this war is over and obviously all wars end and hopefully sooner rather than later i'm absolutely planning on going back and showing them where i grew up and uh, how it changed i'm looking forward to very very much to going to a kosher restaurant and i'm going uh, looking forward to spending shabbat in in a going to all three prayer services right that was not an option or not even a consideration when i was growing up right and you also just mentioned about hoping the war ends soon so what would you say to our listeners who are hearing this podcast or thinking about you and ukraine and saying well i want to jump in and help in some way like what what message would you have for someone i would say that if you have money that you have allocated for charitable giving ukraine is probably the place that needs your money the most right now. There are 14 million displaced people out of 45 million population of Ukraine. Right? There are some towns that are completely leveled. Now it's there, it's real, and those people could use your help. Well said. So let's close before we get to the lightning round where we end our interviews by just asking you, like, what's next as you continue to grow? Like, What's your focus from a Jewish standpoint that you want to accomplish in the years ahead? I would like to learn Hebrew. I started kind of learning Hebrew early in my Shiva high school, but I kind of gave up because it didn't really matter to my day-to-day life. I can read Hebrew, but I don't understand it. But it was enough for me to pray to Daven in, in the synagogue. And a lot of the books come with translations, but I really want to be able to read and understand the nuances of the Tanakh, of the Gemara, of the Mishnah. I've started, it's, it's a slow process at, at this point, but I'm hoping that in the next couple of years I'll, I'll be able to open a page of Gemara without the English translation. I have the same goal, so maybe we should take that one on together. <laughs> <Maybe>. <laughs> All right, so let's jump to our lightning round to close out the interview. And you were just talking about wanting to get better in Hebrew, so my first question is, how many languages can you speak besides English? I am fluent in Russian, I am conversant in Ukrainian, and yes, it's a different language. 
even though the words and alphabets look similar, it's different enough that the Russian speaker would not understand the Ukrainian conversation. And uh, I would say I understand maybe 50% of what is said in Hebrew right now, and I can speak it at 5% level. So I'm not I'm not going to be able to tell you anything right now, but I'm, again, looking forward to learning to be more fluent. All right. So then give us a useful phrase in one of the languages you speak better that you can teach us something that we could use and that we could pronounce, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, say... Uh, Nazdarovye. Did you, have you ever heard that? No. It's something that means to your health. It's something that you say when the person sneezes instead of... Uh-huh. You know, it's a kind of Gesundheit uh, in Russian. But also it means in general it's kind of like a... You know, it should be healthy and kind of happy and like a blessing. All right, let's test it. Uh, <laughs> be healthy. Well said. All right, last question. Give me a favorite food that has Ukrainian roots, something that you just like love getting. So my kids like to joke that my five favorite foods all have potatoes in them. (laughs) So any way you prepare a potato uh, is probably my favorite. You are out of the lightning round, my friend, and I want to thank you, Jeff, for joining me today on Saturday to Shabbos. Jeff, thank you very much. This was a lot of fun and I hope educational for some people. Saturday to Shabbos is produced by Gary Wallach. Our theme music is by Paul Uden. To learn more about us, please visit taklismedia.com. That's T-A-C-H-L-I-S-Media.com. Tell us what you think about what you've heard or suggest a story we should know about by emailing Shabbos at tachlismedia.com. I'm Jeff Cohen. Thanks for listening. Please check with us often for more stories of inspiring Jewish journeys. Saturday to Shabbos is a Tachlis Media podcast.